So today we're beginning a two-part uh, series that, frankly, I have been praying over and working on and thinking about for over a year and a half. Uh, this is uh, important to me. Um, and uh, in fact, next Sunday, I'm going to preach next Sunday, and then after that, uh, I'm going to be headed out on sabbatical. So this is like, like this is my last two sermons before uh, Christmas, and so Merry Christmas to you. Uh, we're going to have a lot of great, great uh, folks uh, ministering uh, in my absence from the pulpit. I, I, I'm so sad I'm actually going to miss, miss it, but um, it's just a time for me to rest up. It, but it was important for me to be here for this week and next week because this is such a critical moment for our church family. And so I, I actually designed the sabbatical uh, to start after uh, this next week. Uh, today, what I hope to do as part of a two, the first part of a two-part uh, uh, sermon is to give you a biblical foundation for why we're doing this, why we're stepping into this space of foster care. And I want to be very clear, we are not starting a foster care ministry, we're becoming a foster care church. And I hope to explain a little bit more about what that means this week and next week. But today, uh, my, my intention is to, from Scripture, help us have a, a view of this uh, reality through the lens of Jesus, to have a, a Jesus-centered view of understanding not only foster care and adoption, but our role in it and how this all plays out. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I hope to argue from Scripture that engaging in foster care and adoption ministry in whatever a space or way that, that we're going to do that is not a matter of mercy. It's not a matter of charity, primarily. It is a matter of justice. Is a matter of justice. Justice is at the very center or heart of God's character. Following Jesus is to follow Jesus and to see things in his view, see things in his view and then live as he lived. We, we talked over the last five weeks uh, here at DSBC about our values, some of our core values, and this is a direct application of those values. Specifically, even just thinking about last week, we said that, w- that we are striving to help people be with Jesus, think like Jesus, and love like Jesus. And so what I hope to do today is to, from Scripture, help us think like Jesus about foster care and adoption through the lens of justice. I just want to start, uh, by the way, we're going to do a bunch of Bible today. And so uh, if you are feeling like, oh my gosh, Caleb's going too fast, I totally get it. I, I, I know. Uh, what I hope to do is post the notes uh, on our website, dsbc.church, under the, on the sermons page, uh, when the sermon posts, there'll be a video and an audio, uh, and I hope to post my notes there, although I am going on sabbatical next week, so we'll see. We'll see, but I'm going to try. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to his followers, and this is what he says in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. TV time out. How much authority? Where? In heaven and on earth, do you all remember, for those of you that have been following along with us, do you remember when we talked about in the biblical mind, in the the view of the biblical authors, that there are two kingdoms, there are two realms. There is the kingdom of heaven, and then there's the kingdoms of this world. In heaven and on earth, those two things are usually juxtaposed in Scripture, heaven and on earth. And where does Jesus have his authority? In heaven and on earth. Did you hear that in the text? Okay. All authority, how much? Has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore... And make disciples or make followers of the Jesus way. Make disciples of all the peoples, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last week we had a baptism, and I don't know if you guys heard, but when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? This text. 
You guys tracking so far with me? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. A lot of times we forget this part. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Teaching them to obey. How many like hearing the word obey? I do not care for that word. However, I do want to say that when Jesus gives a command, it is always for our good. That obeying Jesus' commands is not so we can earn favor with him. It's not so that we can, you know, earn heavenly goodies. It is for our good. Jesus calls us to obedience for our flourishing. All right, check check this out. Uh, Teaching them to obey or observe everything I've commanded you and remember. So Jesus, how are we going to do that? That's a big deal, right? To obey everything Jesus commanded? Have you heard anything that Jesus commanded that you think might be difficult to do on your own power? I'll give you one. Love your enemies. How do we do that, Jesus? And we, we just sang the answer. Not by might, not by power, but by what? By the Spirit of the living God. Now check this out. He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. His Spirit dwells with us. So everyone who turns from sin, repents, and believes in the gospel, His Spirit dwells within us. And so it's by His Spirit, by His power, that we can obey, obey, obey everything that Jesus taught us. Now, we might say, okay, so if we could like summarize all of the teachings of Jesus into like a quick, easy to understand way, might, might, might that be helpful to us? Well, you're in luck. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 and on, this dude comes up to Jesus, and he's asking the same question. Jesus, what's the most important thing? What's the, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Now, now I do want to say this too. Jesus teaches from what you and I call the Old Testament. Jesus comes into the world on Christmas Day. You guys ever heard of Christmas? First Christmas, Jesus comes into the world. It's, he's God in the flesh. He's, he's God in dwelling in humanity, is God in the flesh, but he learns his Bible. I'll prove it to you. You go read the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus learns his Bible, and then he's always teaching from what you and I call the Old Testament. All the time he's riffing on it. In fact, a lot of what Jesus says is just, it's copy, a little bit alter paste of your Older Testament. What, and by the way, he never referred to it as his Older Testament. You know what the people around Jesus' day called the Bible? The Law and the Prophets. The law and the prophets. They, they had in their mind that there's the first part, which they refer to as the law or Torah, and then the second part, which is the prophets. Law and the prophets. Okay, so this dude approaches Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commands in the law and the prophets? Okay, <clears throat> Jesus says, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. TV timeout. Did the guy ask, what are the top two commands? Jesus is always doing this. He is always weaving together love for God with love for people. When you go home today and read through your whole Bible with a bunch of people who aren't like you and argue about it and pray, which I think you should do every day, when you do that, you will notice that throughout your New Testament, love for God and love for people are interwoven. You know someone's love for God with how they love people, biblical authors argue. Jesus says, the second is like it. Stop me if you've heard this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. All of the what? Law and the prophets, right? So if you want to, so the whole Bible, the the law and the prophets, and I think the New Testament authors are teasing these same principles out, hangs on this. Love God, love people. Love people just like you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so there's a recurring theme. So if we were to go, and and I'm going to give you guys a head start, 
because I know you guys are going to go home and read your whole Bible. So I'm going to give you just a quick summary of, the law, of some portions of the law and the prophets that are crucial for us to understand this Jesus view of justice, okay? The energy in this space right now is palpable. We're going to have a Jesus view of justice. And so let's go to uh, look at the law and prophets. I'm just going to give you uh, a, a thing that is, it, it fascinates me. Okay, so throughout your Bible, through your law and prophets, your Older Testament, you will find two key words that appear all the time, hundreds of times. The words translated are justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Or in Hebrew, mishpat and tzedakah. And I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. I just read these things. I don't talk this way. Right? Justice and righteousness. And throughout your Bible, you will find that there are multiple times where the, those two words, justice and righteousness, are paired together. They make a little couplet. In fact, uh, in Psalm 89, 14, it says, righteousness and justice. Do you see the couplet? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. What is, so so uh, I'll give you just a couple more. Let me do um, Hosea 2, 9. Uh, this, oh, this is great. So Hosea is playing off this metaphor where God is marrying his adulterous people. And he says this, this is God speaking, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and compassion. Did you hear righteousness and justice? You heard them coupled together. Okay. Uh, Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you hear justice and righteousness? Did you hear them coupled together? Justice and righteousness are frequently coupled together in your scriptures. In fact, these, uh, these two words, justice, righteousness, they are centered to the character of God. Let's take a look here at uh, Psalm 97, 1 and 2. This is speaking about God. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Isn't that cool? Like you get this powerful image of God. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. Why should the many coasts and islands and the earth rejoice? Why should they be glad? Because the Lord is firmly secured on his throne. And what is the foundation of the throne of the king of the universe? Justice and righteousness. Did you catch it? Let's keep going. Psalm 9, 7 through 9. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. How long? Forever. Is that a long time? Y'all, that is a long time. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment, justice on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Psalm 96, 13. Speaking about the future coming of the Lord. He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and all peoples with his faithfulness. Have you ever heard before that justice and righteousness are not only consistent themes used throughout your scriptures, but they're often coupled together? Have you ever heard that before? They're often coupled together. And they're speaking something to us. And it's something that we need to lean into. We need to lean into it because when we think about justice... We often only think about, especially for those of us who are raised in the West, we often only think about retribution, retributive justice. You wrong me, and you got to pay. My five-year-old daughter loves retributive justice. 
My five-year-old daughter, when she feels that she has been wronged, she will say this. She will, she will kind of, you know, and she'll kind of, she'll kind of, and she'll say this. She'll scrunch her face up. She's a little five-year-old, right? Beautiful hair, beautiful eyes, and she just, she says, I'm going to bring you to justice. She says this to her two-year-old sibling. I'm going to bring you to justice. Now, she loves retributive justice. Retribution, retributive justice is a form of justice. It is when you are wronged and you, you, the other person, it, there's retribution. They're paid back. But there's another aspect of justice. And this is where, for many Westerners, we get, we're just unfamiliar with this. Oh, and I'll tell you why. Have you ever heard of the justice system? Who generally is the justice system concerned with? Like, who, who's participating in that space? Either criminals or those who are wrongly convicted or accused. We just, like, we call it, like, criminal justice system even, and we kind of associate justice only with breaking the law or transgressing, transgressing someone else. But there's a broader view of mishpat and tzedakah, of justice and righteousness. It's much more broad than that. Now, hang on. Here we go. There is distributive justice or restorative justice. So my five-year-old, when she, when she says, I'm going to bring you to justice, she is primarily speaking of retribution. But distributive justice is that things are in such a way that they can live in harmony and flourishing together. That there are enough toys to go around. That everyone has what they need. Uh, uh, let me, um, okay, I'm going to, Okay, okay, let's do this. Um, Y'all ever heard of the Lord's Prayer? Okay. Uh, I learned it the old-fashioned way, if you'll pardon me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, justice and righteousness are the as it is in heavenness of that prayer. That if it exists in the kingdom of heaven, if it exists in Eden, hang with me now, if it exists in the kingdom of God, then it ought to exist here. And if it does not exist in the kingdom of heaven, if it did not exist in Eden, then it ought not to exist here. I'll give you an example, and I'm going to go hard in the paint. Do children who do not have parents or parental oversight sleep on office floors in Eden or the kingdom of heaven? Does that happen? No. So therefore, to pray the prayer as it on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer that justice and righteousness would be established on earth right now as it is in heaven. So for a Jesus follower with the Jesus view of justice and righteousness, if it ought not to, if it does not exist in the kingdom of heaven, it ought not to exist here. And if it does exist in the kingdom of heaven, it ought to exist here. You with me so far? Okay, we're going to go fast, so let's keep going. Uh, uh, oh boy, okay, so this is fun. Um, I want you to hang with me, okay? I'm going to ask that you would approach this next part with curiosity and not suspicion, okay? I'm your pastor, I love you so much, but I got to tell you something. In the last two years, there's, a, a, there's two words that were put together, and a bunch of people, a lot of them are Jesus followers, uh, said it's not in your Bible. And that, that phrase is social justice. Uh, so I've, I've, I've watched people, and, and just hold on with me. Now, now, I've seen people say things like social justice is, 
uh, foreign to the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's a outside of the Bible, it's, you know, it's this type of political perspective or whatnot. But I just want to just encourage you to um, allow, the, 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 allow Jesus to shape your mind about justice. And I want to just encourage you in this. Social justice has been a word that Christians have used to talk about mishpat and tzedakah as it's executed in society for over 100 years. So just because a person, especially a Christian, says the phrase social justice, that does not mean that they're trying to sneak in something foreign to your Bible. It has been used by Christian theologians and authors for over 100 years. And frankly, this is just my opinion. I'm going to step away from the text give you my opinion. Just because someone out there redefined the word doesn't mean I am going to change necessarily. Do you know that marriage means different things in different societies to different people? But, so, but I use the word. And when I use the word, I would hope that you would give me the charity of assuming that it's a word that's being defined by Jesus' worldview and not some foreign political ideology. Do you know that the word God means different things to different people? I hope you know that, right? We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop using the word. So I just want to encourage you that when you hear that phrase, social justice, kind of out there in the water, just, just ask, what do you mean by that? Do you, do you mean that we rob from the rich and give to the poor? No, that's not what I mean. Okay, well, what do you mean? Well, I just mean, okay. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. So, Moshe Schweinfeld, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but again, I read it. He wrote a book called Social Justice in Ancient Israel and the Ancient Near East. And his argument, and I agree with him, is that when justice and righteousness are coupled together, a, a good way to describe what is in view is social justice. Justice applied in society, in the social sphere. You guys hanging with me so far? Hey. Aubrey Hendricks, who's a brilliant commentator and theologian, says this. Uh, that, that this justice and righteousness, hold on, check this out. Justice and righteousness, especially when they're coupled together, are divinely ordained ways, uh, is a divinely ordained way of relating to one another in human society. A divinely ordained way of relating to one another in human society. So not, not retributive justice where you wrong me and I, I, I get retribution. It's, to make, it's as it is in heaven. Ness. Foster care and adoption are not primarily matters of charity, nor are they primarily matters of mercy. It's a matter of justice. We're gonna, uh, uh, we're gonna go fast here. Um, and so I brought my sweatband. Okay? You guys ever played tennis? I haven't, but I bought this. Um, so, because we're gonna, I'm gonna sweat. And I hope you're not sweating, but maybe you might. Here we go. Okay. Justice and righteousness, to have a Jesus view of justice and righteousness, loving our neighbor as ourselves, we have in view this biblical story of justice and righteousness being a divinely ordained way of relating to one another in human society. It is the in heavenness as we look at our space and time on earth. Where should we be looking to apply justice and righteousness? Where should we be looking to apply justice and righteousness? Track me. Nicholas Wolsterhoff in his book, Justice, Rights, and Wrongs, says that there are four primary categories that are named in your law and prophets. He calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. It is the widow, the immigrant or foreigner or alien, depending on your translation, the orphan or the fatherless, 
and the poor. And the poor is generally speaking a broad term. It doesn't just mean economically poor. It also means like socially poor, people who just, their voices are not heard. They're left into the margins, okay? The quartet of the vulnerable uh, have the lion's share of the calls for justice. And we're going to go fast. I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to apply it. In your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. Listen to, okay, so um, here's how we can help each other. And by that, I mean you help me. Um, I would like for you to say the word out loud, uh, yo. And what I would like for you to do, thank you, what I would like for you to do is if you hear justice or righteousness or any of its corollary words, or you hear a member of the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the alien or immigrant or foreigner, the orphan, or the fatherless child, or the poor, I would like for you to say out loud, so I know that I'm hearing what you're hearing, I would like for you to say the word out loud, uh, yo. So if you hear justice or righteousness, or uh, the widow, the immigrant, alien, the orphan or fatherless child, or the poor, I'm going to ask you to say, okay, we're going to go fast. Hold on to your hats. If you brought a seatbelt, buckle it. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan, for the widow, and he shows love for the foreigner by giving them food and clothing. So show your love for the foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Do you see that God tethers the love to the stranger with their origin story? You love the foreigner because you were foreigners. Do you know, I just want to just make this a little side. Do you know that the biblical authors refer to people who have turned from their sin and turned towards Jesus, who, by the way, Jesus always says yes to them? Do you know that, that we were referred to as adopted sons and daughters? I wonder what that might mean if we were to tether that we were to tether our origin story to the needs that we see in our community. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 22, you shall not pervert justice. Do an alien or an orphan or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding, watch this. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field, y'all know when you reap your harvest in your field? You know when you do that? Okay, I want you to imagine that you know what that means. It means make money, doesn't it? Okay, check this out. When you reap your harvest in your field and you've forgotten a sheaf out in the field, don't go back and get it. It, is, it shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow, in order that the Lord your God, listen, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. That's hot fire. When you beat your olive tree, do you guys know when you're out and you beat your olive tree? All the time, right? I think this is about making the olives come down so you can harvest them and make money. Or it may just be in anger beating your olive tree. I don't know, right? Do, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, now we're getting closer to home, all of y'all fancy folks going up to those wineries and whatnot. Next time you see a vineyard, I want you to think about this text. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, don't go over it again. It shall be for the foreigner, for the orphan, 
And for the widow, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed is the one who distorts justice due a foreigner, an orphan, or a widow. And then literally in Deuteronomy 27, 19, it finishes, and all the people say amen. And if you think that it gets easier, wait till you turn the page to Isaiah. I don't, I, we're going to go to the prophets now. I've already done Hosea and Amos. We're going to do pro, Isaiah, or we've done Hosea and Amos. I'm going to do Isaiah 1. Here's the context of Isaiah 1. God is speaking to his chosen people through Isaiah. His people are practicing their religion. They have opulent practices of religion. They've got feasts. They take their holy days seriously. They gather in, uh, in an assembly all the time. They have beautiful structures. They have beautiful religion, pra religious practices. But here's one thing that they're not doing. They are not taking care of the quartet of the vulnerable. Now listen to what God says to this people. And if you have a diaper, you might want to get it out. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies. Hello, church. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So that when you spread, listen to this, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead the cause of the widow. And if you're feeling uncomfortable and you say to yourself, maybe I'll turn to the Psalms for comfort. Here we go. Psalm 146.9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Psalm 68.5, a father, he's a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows. God in his holy habitation. Psalm 82.3, vindicate the weak and fatherless, God. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Psalm 10.18, you vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that humans who are of this earth will cause terror no longer. And just in case you fall into the trap of thinking, this is all a bunch of Old Testament business. This is just stuff in the law and the prophets. Not only did Jesus have it dripping through all of his teachings, James, the brother of Jesus, meditating likely on Isaiah and other corollary texts, recognizing the teachings of Jesus, says this in James chapter 1, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their day of distress and to keep themselves unstained by the power structures and systems of this world. So what would it look like for us to actually mean what we say when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? There are 14,000 50 children in the Arizona foster care system as of last week. 2,405 are in group homes. Group homes. 56% are nine years or younger. 
24 of these kids, as of, I think it was last Friday, 24 of these kids were staying the night in a DCS office on the floor because there is no bed for them. 25% of foster children who work their way through the system end up homeless, many of them incarcerated. Right now, the need is for 500 families to raise their hand and say they can live with me. What would it look like for when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, the in heavenness of our life and lifestyles, justice and righteousness, to be a people marked by justice and righteousness, not out of guilt, shame, expectations, or obligation, but out of recognizing that our origin story is that we were far from God and he adopted us in. Two thousand. 405 kids in group homes, 14,050 kids in the whole system. 50%, 56% of them are nine years or younger. Who's going who's to teach that nine-year-old girl that she means something to God when she comes home after being bullied? Who's going to teach the four-year-old how to tie her shoes? Who's going to help the 12-year-old bedazzle their backpack? Who's going to teach the 16-year-old young man how to drive and how to be respectful to others and how to live righteously and justly? Who's going to change the one-year-old's diapers? Who's going to help the five-year-olds know that though we might want to bring people to justice, there's a broader sense of the word? Who's going to tell these 14,000 children that Jesus loves them so much and then model it for them in a home? Church, we're not starting a foster care ministry. We're becoming a foster care church, which means that every one of us has a role to play. For some of us, that's going through the training and becoming licensed to be foster parents. For some of us, that means being trained so that we can do respite care. So when, when, when mom and dad need a break, we can take them into our homes and keep them for the night. For some of us, that means specifically praying for specific kids within our church and within our community. For some of us, that means within our community group doing wraparound training so that we can best support the families that are in our community groups. For some of us, that means funding these ministries. For others of us, it just means welcoming in these children with open arms. For some of us, that means throwing parties when there's adoption or reunification with the family. I don't know what your role is, but I believe with all my heart that because God is a God of justice and righteousness, he calls his church to be just and righteous too. And so what would it be like for us as a people? I'm gonna invite you next Sunday at 12.30, so after next Sunday's second service, we're gonna meet over in the student center with AZ-127. And they're going to lead us through a conversation of each of us finding our role in foster care and adoption. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm just trying to plead with you. Let us be a people who live in justice and righteousness. That it would be here at Desert Springs as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. You call us your adopted sons and daughters because of the work, Jesus, that you have done. And so by the power of your spirit, would you lead us as a church family forward? May we be a people who live right now, day by day, moment by moment, by the value systems and by the power of your kingdom as we live drawing breath on this earth, being unstained by the power structures and systems and evil of this world's systems, but rather clinging to you. We give ourselves to you, Jesus, knowing that you love us and you're powerful to bring these things about. We entrust ourselves to your care. Amen.